0: The world as we know it has fundamentally changed. What was once considered the future of work is here now. We are operating in an all-digital, work-from-anywhere world. More and more consumers are supporting brands that align with their personal values. It's the values-driven firms that will rebound sooner and grow faster in this new world. Salesforce has partnered with Singapore Community Radio to bring you this podcast. We want to explore the opportunities and the challenges of this new world. We want to talk about the ways in which we will work going forward, how businesses can be a platform for change, and how technology will continue to impact the world. We have some amazing thought leaders, executives, and community advocates joining us, and we hope it sparks some inspiration and innovation for you. To learn more about us, you can head to our blog at salesforce.com /ap/blog
1: Hi, this is Asha Peripatlal and in this episode of Business is a Platform for Change, we have in the studio here Liao Yang Far. He's the executive director of Ugachaka, have I got it right? Yes, it is. Okay. That's Singapore's uh, LGBT full counseling agency and it's been around for yes, 20 years. And Young Fa has been around as a medical social worker.
2: Just a social worker, registered social, social worker.
1: And you've been doing social work for...
2: Um, more than 10 years, yeah. I qualified in 2006.
1: When did you get into social work?
2: Why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose something that a lot of people don't know about social work is it's not just about welfare, of course. Social work as a profession has its roots in welfare, social welfare, helping the poor and all that. And that was back in the day when, you know, people just did that out of the sheer good of their hearts. Of course over the years, um, certainly in developed countries, social work as a profession has evolved into something that's very importantly about social justice. Okay. Social justice and talking about you know, access to services, access to rights. And doing you know what we need and should do for for each other in the community in the country. So that's what social work really is about.
1: You're a very well known person and face in the LGBTQ community in Singapore. So I'm sure there are a lot of things that you know ordinary straight Singaporeans don't know about the community. What is a w- one, top three things that come to mind that you wish they knew?
2: Top three. Well, the first one that comes to mind is, you know, we, we're very, in, in, in language terminology, we're very comfortably, or well, some of us more than others, we comfortably rattle off the, the acronym, right, LGBTQ+. plus. I mean, i just like to maybe sometimes remind people that, you know, even though we use that acronym, it, we are not a monolithic block. We are not, no, no individual is L and G and B and T and Q. It's just... Um, so, so what I'm trying to say is we are a very diverse community. And sometimes I find myself using the plural, the well, communities, just that we kind of, um, over time and because of history, we kind of come under this very common um, rainbow umbrella, if you will. So number one would be we are a very diverse community of communities. Some people prefer to use the term rainbow communities. I think that's quite appropriate, the recognition that even though the rainbow is a singular, we are we are made up of so many different colours, diversities.
1: Is it as colourful as a rainbow?
2: Um, I would say a lot more shades of greys and blacks and browns and not just your neat six colours. There's so many other colours in between. and so a lot of nuances. I mean, that's life, Right.
1: Yeah, and yeah. then you have the stereotypes, right? The that stereotypes. all gay people are really good at fashion. Is that true? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, I'm, I think I'm wearing a nice shirt today. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm living up to that stereotype. Of course, as we know, with stereotypes and generalizations, it's, it's sometimes helpful and sometimes, well, most times it's not. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I know lots of gay men, for example, just talk about gay men, uh, who who find that they... they, they Become uh, negatively portrayed because of some of these unhelpful stereotypes. For example, you not know, just extending upon that, the idea that gay men have to be very fashionable, gay men have to be good looking, gay men have to, and this is where it crosses into very dangerous territory. That gay men have to conform to certain physical types, fitness, and and that. Personally and professionally, in my work, as well, I see it as very unhelpful, and that causes a lot of distress for people who don't conform to those stereotypes.
1: I mean, they, we all need to be couch potatoes at times, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and stuff our face with food and yeah. And have a <laughs> bad
1: hair day and bad fashion day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
2: and days where we just don't want to go out. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> all right, Yang Pao, let's talk about the workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, do gay men and women have problems getting on up the career ladder? Uh, do they need to hide their sexuality if they need to advance in their careers?
2: I mean, that's a very important, very relevant question, of course, within the context of workplace. Uh, again, to be fair, just a couple of observations. I mean, the first ob- observation I'll make is it really does depend on where in the world you are, um, w- where in the world you work, Um so certainly in Singapore context, there's a whole range of uh, workplace settings, whether it's your large multinational corporations with five hundred five thousand 5,000 staff, and of course, you have your small, medium enterprises, your family businesses, your five people in the shop house. So the range of experiences would vary. Uh, what we can, I mean, based on observations we've had, what we can say is for gay men and lesbians, there's often the, and I should say, either opportunity or luxury to come out or to not come out in the workplace. And that's a very personal choice and decision. Um, Increasingly, we're hearing that a lot of the multinational space here in Singapore with headquarters or regional headquarters, they talk about having very um, inclusive and uh, friendly policies, HR policies, and that often always helps. What we we often say when we uh, engage or dialogue with um, corporates or HR folks is that, you know, it's not about asking your LGBTQ employees to come out at work because coming out at work to family, to to anyone, to anywhere, is often a very personal decision. So just because they work for you doesn't mean they have to come out. However, having said that, what's important is as an employer, the responsibility is on you to create a safe environment for the employees to continue working, of course, to be productive, to be efficient. And should they choose to come out they're supported and protected from discrimination. So that's kind of really important. So one of the kind of... So
1: on the ground, what happens really? I mean, mm. can you tell me a story of what happens? I just want to understand what yeah. what's there. So,
2: so um, I, I know of people who talk about how you know, they... I'll start with the negative stories first, unfortunately. Uh, we, we hear of people um, uh, who, who, who present themselves at work, um, how you is a kind of... a. a uh, an example right maybe it's um, a lesbian a gay woman you know she prefers to uh, wear a uh, shirt and trousers to work that's how she prefers to be present herself she identifies as a lesbian she has short hair and, and that's her you know she doesn't feel like she needs to come out at work because she just sits behind the desk that's the job it's not a front-line job and of course this is not a large company as far as we know of course, one day her manager comes up to her and just asks her point blank in the face, you know, "Do you want to be a man or woman? Why are you dress like that?" And then, can you imagine this is somebody who is just getting on with her job and to be confronted something like that? And if the company she works for doesn't have any specific policies on, uh, I don't know, dress code or or, or even uh, discrimination from employer uh, from the manager immediately means that she's already working in an environment that's not safe for her. I mean, the fact that the manager confronts her with that comment and that she has nowhere to turn to to seek redress, that is very, very uh, unfair, unsafe. But that kind of uh, discrimination is, is not unusual. I wouldn't say it's rampant, but the fact that it happens is not good enough. There's no, We don't know of any legislation that protects people who... who uh, experience such uh, discrimination in the workplace. Are there
1: any good stories there at all?
2: The, well, good stories, yes. The good stories happen when companies make very positive, um, um, put in place very positive measures or policies or even events, activities to support their employees. So, for example, um, we, we we know of a situation where, um, uh, which is a young graduate um, who works uh, working in a local bank, Participated in another bank's LGBT event. I mean, as a young graduate in a university, so he clearly didn't want to come out at work in his local bank. Attended this other bank's event, uh, LGBT event, where uh, he could mix with you know other like-minded professionals, and he saw his manager there, and that already made him feel immediately comfortable that hey, my manager is comfortable enough. It, in this case, the manager identifies as a straight man, is comfortable enough to be seen as an ally of the community, and that immediately gave him assurance that, hey, there's somebody in my office that has my back who is supportive of the LGBTQ community, and things like that. I mean, maybe a s- small gesture, it does make a difference knowing that you, know, you have an ally at work.
1: You've been a leader in the LGBTQ community for, what, how many years now? Just <laughs> 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 giving over your age, yeah? Um, yeah, well, <laughs>
2: A few, on that one. A few years, a few years, yeah.
1: Okay. So, I mean, have you seen it change people's attitudes? Are they nicer, not so nice
2: now? Or are they more, you know, less I- inclusive now? Ch- change is hard to measure. If anything, what, what I can, I suppose, safely describe is there's certainly been a lot more conversation about it. I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation, I mean, that's uh, an, an indicator I probably, or I don't know if anyone would even want to or dare to have a conversation like this, say 10 years ago. So the fact that we're talking about this openly, that's important. Why wouldn't they dare? I think it's because you know, we, we back then, we weren't quite sure what to say, how to say, who's listening, the people who are listening, what would they say? Will there be that another you know, Singaporean reaction, you know, the backlash? Um, the whole idea of what sort
1: of backlash? Backlash,
2: yeah. Again, um, what sort
1: of backlash? Back-
2: backlash uh, in terms of, you know, let's boycott this brand. You know, they are seen as pro LGBT, pro diversity inclusion. Or let's boycott this shop, boycott that brand. And sometimes it's well, <laughs> boycotting as 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 a as, as a form of action. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it's just a lot of noise as well backlash against uh, the companies who are seen as uh, supportive and affirming of LGBTQ um, employees. So, and then that creates a lot of uh, tension as well. And of course, in a Singapore context, some businesses might worry about their, their livelihoods, their, yeah, their, their survival as well. So a lot of anxieties.
1: But over the years, uh, you know, things have changed, as you things said. Things have changed, yeah. So what about the young gay generation these days? Mm. Are, are they? Is it? Do they... Take it as uh, given that you know you've fought all these battles for them over the past few years, or are they like you know? Oh, these guys have done nothing for us; we have to yeah. do all the battles ourselves. I, I'm not
2: sure about uh, um, whether that's a prevailing kind of attitude. But to be fair. Um, uh, there's a lot more awareness now amongst, um, shall we say, uh, the, the younger generation. And by younger generation, I'm referring to maybe people born in this century, you know, maybe the <laughs> early that 20s. Was,
1: that was exclude <laughs> quite... <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't say uh, uh, us. Uh, Maybe
2: uh, this is a arbitrary definition. Anyone under 30, right? Anyone under 30 now, they probably is a lot more awareness of LGBTQ issues, certainly in a local context, certainly definitely in the international context. There's a lot of awareness uh, in terms of news and issues. And certainly we know they're talking about it amongst themselves. Uh, in terms of how much do you know about the progress that we have made, however incremental in Singapore, well, I mean, there's a lot to be said about history, history of any kind, right? Whether we look to the past and the kind of uh, um minuscule changes that have happened in Singapore. I mean, things have happened in Singapore. Just I think a lot of us are just very frustrated at which this, uh, the slow pace at which it happens. So how sometimes we How do you fast track it? Fast track. I don't know. Um. You know. Looking at the experience of, I mean, Singapore, we have the wonderful advantage of looking at international experience and seeing how other developed countries have done it. Uh, you know, their their experience of social policies, economic policies, and yet, Singapore, we are so good at fast-tracking economic policies, economic change, but in terms of social policies and social change, we are a lot more conservative in a sense. So, fast-tracking is well, learning from how other countries have done it. I mean, we don't have to look far, Um in this part of the world, Southeast and East Asia, we just look at Hong Kong and and, and Taiwan. They have made that progress, granted. Um, So maybe similar histories, but different legislative frameworks. I don't know.
1: Why do you think they're so socially conservative?
2: Well, it depends on who you ask. Um, Different people have different different, different understanding of why we're so socially conservative. Um, Of course, there's the... There's the the, the need to, I suppose, have have, a majority consensus. I mean, that often has been. I mean, it's a known fact that the the government line, you know, that um, our country, Singapore, is not ready for decriminalization of gay sex, for example. So, that that idea of no, we do it only when we are ready. So, that's one uh, reason put forth. When will we be ready? So, that's the question. And how do you measure readiness? And, And by whose measure? Is a country of already? Are we talking about the country as a whole? Are we talking about majority? Are we talking about minority? Are you talking about you know who are we asking? So that's a, uh, I mean that that as an argument itself is, is is interesting because it's so open. So yeah,
1: does it annoy you that you know I think socially conservative countries like India that mm-hmm. struck down they decriminalized gay sex mm-hmm. in twenty eighteen and they 20, are cetera. very socially conservative society yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, so again, you know, there was a time you talk about the changes we've seen in the past ten, twenty years. I mean, there was a time where a lot of the argument was about how you no, know, it's not Asian to be LGBT. You know, it's 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 not it's, it's not, not prof- Asian to be LGBT. They used to be the case. They used to be the case. You know, <laughs> of of pitching Asian values versus LGBT values. You know, the idea of a polarizing family versus LGBT community, Asian values versus LGBT community. But you know, just look yeah. at the past two years: India, Taiwan, Hong Kong, you know, LGBT. and Thailand too. So,
1: they have families too, don't they?
2: Absolutely. Thank you for acknowledging that. And then um, we have a sticker in our office It's a rainbow sticker. It's it's actually on our, our front door actually, and it's a, it's a sticker that says "All families matter," mm. and it's on a rainbow background because we acknowledge that we all come from families. <laughs> um, there are families. they are LGBTQ diverse. So we all and families do matter.
1: So, so all these movements nowadays, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. All Lives Matter. Does that help your cause or does it not?
2: I mean, if anything, it reminds us of the need for recognising diversity. And again, I want to deliberately use the diversities in the plural, diversities of our racial, ethnic backgrounds, of historical backgrounds, and our country origins, as well as our sexualities and identities. Because a lot of it is about who we are and what we are and how we want to see ourselves. I mean, I'm not just sitting here as the gay man, full stop. There's so many other identities I embrace as well. Likewise, for all the people I work with or... The staff and volunteers I work with, our our counseling clients. I mean, we're all so rich from all those intersecting and diverse identities. So, do conversations
1: center around, you know, or skirt around the fact that you are gay? Or does does it, you know, can you not just have conversations where you're just
2: young we can. We can have conversations about that at some point for me as a as a social worker, the professional, as a gay man, as somebody who cares about uh, community issues. All those issues are kind of important to me as well. So, so what non gay issues are important to you? What non gay issues? Animal welfare. <laughs> I think that's important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's important. And again, you know, it depends on who you ask. It can be a queer issue too, because of course, lots of uh, LGBTQ people also have. Um, are for parents, you know, they have for kids, so that's important. So, that's that queer element to it. Of course, animal welfare is animal welfare, right? So What's the
1: lockdown been like for the community?
2: It's been, it's not been easy. Again, I've not read enough about the impact on the non LGBTQ community, but certainly from what we hear, uh, based on our own experience of running our counselling services and also some local studies done by another group, the impact of having to stay. At home for what was it, eight weeks with family. I think there was a study that found that something like uh, um, one in five uh, LGBTQ respondents uh, described their living environment as being hostile. I think that was the word that was used uh, and rejecting rejecting of their LGBTQ identity. So that was worrying. And something like three in five of the respondents, um, LGBTQ respondents, were worried about their own mental health during lockdown. And then, of course, uh, at Ugachagar um, we had to shut our physical office uh, in April and May. Um, so we couldn't see clients face-to-face, but we saw a, a, a consequent increase, quite exponential increase in our online services, our email and WhatsApp counselling services, partly because people couldn't come in to see us and partly because there are a lot more new people coming in talking about the distress, the, the tension they were feeling at home, in their relationships. I mean, for example, I still distinctly remember one uh, client... Uh, gay men, uh, who talked about how the circuit breaker in Singapore put a circuit breaker on his relationship with his partner because, of course, they were living in different households, their families didn't know about their relationship, they couldn't see each other, and that puts a tremendous strain on the relationship. Because we know in Singapore, at least for a lot of LGBTQ couples, there's a sense of secrecy about the relationship. They can't tell their families. Is it tough keeping secrets? Well, on top of, for some people, having to keep the secret of their identity, they have to keep the secret of their relationship, keep the secret of where they're going and what they're doing with the people they love. All that adds up and um, with secret, I you know sometimes it's a little of shame as well. And that's tough. It is tough. Um, I know somebody else who describes it as almost like, um, it's along the lines of uh, shame, microaggressions. I mean, a single paper cut, we can take it, right? Just keeping one secret, we can do it. But if you can do it repeatedly, In different settings, you have to tell lies to different people repeatedly at different settings. It's like death, by a thousand paper cuts. Multiple, multiple paper cuts. It's the same with um, discrimination, bullying, microaggressions. And that's painful.
1: What's been the most painful experience for you coming out as a gay man in Singapore?
2: (laughs) I never had the choice of coming out to my family. I was outed by my family when I was 18. So this Mm -hmm. was in the last century. So that I can recall as a particularly painful experience personally uh, as an 18-year-old to have been altered before I was ready. Mm. So again, this is something and this maybe is quite core and central to my work as well as a social worker and counsellor. Now working with the community, coming out so central to so many people's experience and it should always be a personal choice that we make and not feel like it's taken from us.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, mm. what would you change?
2: You know, um I mean thinking back of of um, when I was eighteen, I was outed against my will, right i mean on on hindsight, I sometimes wonder, had I not been outed, would I ever have come out, mm-hmm. so I don't know how I can answer that question. would I undo that outing? I don't know, I really don't know it's yeah,
1: but that's a heavy secret and a burden to keep, isn't it
2: yeah, so who knows I might have been a, I might turn out to be a different person, Hannah, I'll be out at eighteen. <laughs>
1: oh, that uh, a lot of people have different things happen to them because you know things yeah. uh, change for them. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, going forward, you know, in Singapore, right? What do you hope to see change in Singapore?
2: You know, change is such a big nebulous. I mean, there's so many ways we can change. We can change attitudes, uh, our thoughts, uh, how we see things. I mean, before we change behaviour, we, we really need to change how we see and view things. Even having a conversation about uh, terminology, LGBTQ or other words we use, I mean, do we want to consciously use certain words or do we talk about people as they are, as, as you alluded to earlier, you know? Do we always talk about being gay, being queer, being trans or do we talk about people as we are? Unfortunately, in Singapore, we are still, maybe rightly so, still quite hung up on differences, and that's maybe just how we are as a country. We're hung about race, for example, We're hung about sexual orientation, We're hung about age, <laughs> so many things.
1: <laughs> and we may not survive all of this anyway. Mm,
2: true, yeah, yeah.
1: So, it, the different terminologies, right? There's gay, there's queer, there's mm-hmm. homosexual. Mm. Um, what's the so called accepted term?
2: Yeah, again, I mean, I appreciate that we're sitting here, you know, in 21st century, Singapore, speaking English. I mean, there was a time, I certainly remember a time where, you know, growing up, being homosexual, being transsexual, uh, those exact words were, were terms used by parents and doctors to, to, to frighten us, to medicalize and pathologize us. Because back then, before 1990, it was acceptable all over the world by the medical professionals to, to diagnose us as, to diagnose homosexuality as a mental disorder. So that was literally something that they could lift off a medical textbook and diagnose and send people for treatments, conversion treatments to stop them from becoming homosexual. Likewise for transsexualism as well. So those words were in use in the ni- uh, last century, and of course now we are moving away from the idea of you know medicalizing and pathologizing. So we in, in, in contemporary um, language in our community at least we we tend not to use words like homosexual or transsexual, also partly because the focus is so much on not just the medical aspect of it, but the sexual, biological aspect of it. So more appropriately, we use terms LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, to focus on the gender. And of course, Q is another kind of tricky word as well. Um, in an Ugachaga setting, Q for questioning, because we acknowledge mm. that it's a journey. We don't just wake up and realise we are gay, we are trans. It's, it's a journey of discovery, exploring. We, we prefer not to use the word confused because, you know, confused sense of a negative connotation. So questioning is a journey. And you
1: spoke of a conversion treatment. Mm. What are conversion treatments? It's, is some, that
2: still, happen it's still happening in Singapore? It's still happening in Singapore. It's happening all over the world. In Singapore, I mean, it's, it comes from a very harmful, unethical thought and practice and belief that, you know, being LGBTQ is wrong medically, Uh, morally, and that that needs to be corrected. So sometimes it's seen as corrective, reparative, and converting back to becoming straight, converting back to becoming non-trans. That happens in Singapore, and research uh, all over the world has shown that it's often kind of um, uh, uh, practiced by so-called professionals, religious leaders, hospital settings, community settings, unfortunately.
1: Is there any medical scientific evidence that... Nope.
2: In fact, there's a lot of research to show that it's professionally unethical and it's also harmful. It's medically harmful. It causes trauma. Okay. And we unfortunately see that with some of the counselling clients who come to us with clear signs of uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a result of having gone through some of those treatments.
1: Okay. Is there a lot of people in Singapore, straight people, who don't really understand all the issues that the community faces? Of course.
2: Of course, and again, to be fair, we don't expect everybody to know everything about us. I think should
1: they know? Um, I, Are they, should they be expected to know?
2: I wouldn't go as far as saying should. If anything, I would say, if it's something that you're interested in, do find out. Google is our friend, of course. Uh, if if you're working in environment in a workplace environment where you know the company has clear policies about diverse communities, then you no. Know, do yourselves a favour, read up about the issues. I mean, there's a certain expectation that, oh, I need to go and talk to a queer person to learn from them, you know. But well, before you go and engage in in, in these conversations, do a bit of reading up as well and find out, you know, what is it, what's the difference between L and G and T and P and Q? So find out, starting with language. And also the find out what it means to have um, uh, protection uh, of against uh, anti-LGBT bullying in the workplace, right? I mean, are you going to... Uh, stop a trans person from using the toilet, you know, and and those kind of uh, policies in place.
1: Diversity and inclusion is a very catchy Mm -hmm. uh, phrase, Mm. but it means very little to people a lot of the times. And a lot of the times you have a lot of uh, intolerance right now. Mm -hmm. So is there a necessity for, you know, these sort of... uh, terms, so to speak, within the workplace?
2: Um, I would say there is a necessity to use these terms as a start, but don't just stop there. It's not just a a box that you tick or a, a sticker you put on a folder and a file somewhere and say, yeah, we've got it, and with the policy. What, what I would be really interested to know is the nuts and bolts, the details in the DNI policy. I mean, if you call this an event in and DNI one Uh, D&I event, you know. What what do you mean by that? Is it just a big nebulous umbrella term or are you really breaking it down and not just tolerating but also affirming because increasingly we also talk about a spectrum of behaviours. I I don't want to walk into a room or event and just be tolerated. I want to be affirmed. I think we all deserve that, whatever, whoever we are, affirming us as employees, as people, you know.
1: You... The community has tried to change the laws in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, what comes first? This is a chicken and egg question. <laughs> attitudes come first, change or law needs to change first. Which comes first?
2: Okay. Um if you ask the Singapore government and they've been very public about this, uh their stance seems to be attitudes need to change first. The back to we, the need the country needs to be ready before we change legislation, right? But then when you look at things from a different perspective, from a human rights perspective, for example, from a a perspective of international law, of protecting minority communities, legislation needs to change first. So again, it's, yeah.
1: A lot of COVID-19 has changed a lot of people's attitudes about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Do you think it will change anything in Singapore for the community? I certainly
2: hope so. I mean, I agree with what they're saying. If anything, that um, the pandemic has taught us, you know, this year in Singapore alone, we are recognising vulnerabilities in our communities, uh, not just LGBTQ community, uh, for migrant worker communities, for example, that people are differentially impacted by crises, you know. We can't all just stay home and watch Netflix and drink wine. Some of us cannot do that, are not able to do that, right? Do you see a kindness society? <laughs> Personally, I do. I hope this will continue. The kindness, um, I sometimes worry that, you know, when, it will be when, when we have our vaccines, when the COVID pandemic is over, actually the next pandemic that's coming will be the mental health one. And kindness will go a long way in, in helping that. Of course, lots of other things need to come in place as well uh, to, to tackle the mental health pandemic. But kindness is a start, for sure. I think we need that. We, we can never have enough of kindness.
1: On that note, thank you very much, Yangfa. I shall go out there and to all our listeners, do something kind for someone today and that will make things better. Hopefully, it will be a start. Thank, thank you so much, Thank Yanka. you so much, Aja. Thank you. <laughs>